For the past 11 months, we've walked on a journey together through the glorious book of Hebrews, Sunday by Sunday, passage by passage. It's been a good journey, hasn't it? And I realize some of you are joining us along the way. Uh, some of you have joined us in recent weeks or months, and we're glad you're with us. And um, some of you are here for the first time today. If this is your first visit with us, welcome. And I hope that we can get to know you on that program you received on your way in. Uh, there's a QR code. You can use that electronically to connect with us, or you can fill it out on the paper form and give it to the folks at the welcome desk on the left as you exit. We're so glad you're here. So whether this is your first step on our journey through Hebrews, or whether this is, uh, I didn't count them out, but uh, 40-some on our journey through the book of Hebrews, we're glad we're here together. I want to give a personal thanks to Pastor Mark, our lead pastor, who has served us so well as a church over these last 11 months, uh, not only explaining the content of the book of Hebrews, but applying it in such clear, caring, pastoral ways. Mark, you're a blessing to us. Thank you. Join me, please, at the end of the book of Hebrews. Mark's given me the privilege of... Um, closing our journey through the book of Hebrews. And this morning, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 18 through 25. And as you turn to Hebrews 13, I've been wondering, how have you been impacted in our journey through the book of Hebrews? What, what have you been learning about the glories of Jesus Christ? How has the Spirit of God been transforming you? You know, as you think back over our journey through the book of Hebrews, how, how would you summarize? How would you summarize the main theme of the book of Hebrews? And you don't have to answer this out loud, but I would like you to think about it. How would you summarize this glorious book of Hebrews? What's the major theme? My humble offering is this. Jesus is greater than... Jesus is greater than. And, and you might be wondering, well, Pastor Larry, who are you talking about? Jesus is greater than whom? Jesus is greater than what? Well, if you think back over the preceding chapters, we've seen things like this. Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the old covenant along with its priests and sacrifices. So why was the author of Hebrews, why was the author of Hebrews focusing so much, so much on the superiority of Jesus Christ over the old covenant in all its ways? Why does he just keep parking there? Well, the recipients of this letter were first century Jewish Christians. And apparently, reading between the lines, they had been wavering in their faith in Jesus and in their faithfulness to Jesus. We know right from this sermon letter, the book of Hebrews, that life wasn't easy for these people. Some of you will remember what we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. He said, we recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that would be enlightened by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, 
sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who treat it. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. In other words, when these Jewish people turned to Jesus Christ as the Messiah and walked away from many of their Old Testament, Old Jewish ways, life didn't get easier for them. It got harder. It got much harder. So what would these early Jewish Christians be tempted to do? They were tempted to let go of Jesus Christ. And even though you've not walked in their sandals, think about it for a minute if you had. You've become a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. That was not a popular move. And now that you're professing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, life is getting harder. People are hurting you. People are persecuting you. They're taking their stuff. They're throwing your friends in jail, maybe throwing you in jail. So what's going through your mind? You know what? Maybe it would be easier. Maybe it would be easier if we just let go of Jesus... And, and went back to the old ways. May, maybe it'd be easier if we just went back to Judaism. Maybe it would be easier if we just went back to our B.C. days, our before Christ days. So what is the author of Hebrews going to do with that? What did the author of Hebrews do with that? When he was addressing these friends of his, he knew these people. You can pick that up in some of the verses we're going to read in a little while. But he looks at his friends, these baby Jewish Christians who are, are wavering. They're, they're wavering in their faith. They're wavering in their faithfulness. They're, they're seemingly ready to let go of Christ. And so what does he say? Kids, adults, this is really important. He tells them, don't let go of Christ. Hold on to Christ. And you see this all through this sermon letter. I just picked a few. How about chapter 2, verse 3? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How about in chapter 3? Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, look at this word, unbelieving heart, a heart that loses faith. An evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another. Every day, as long as it's still called a day, that none of you, watching for one another's souls, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And we move to chapter 4. Since then, we have such a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Or in that passage that Jennifer read during our scripture this morning, verse 23 of chapter 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. <clears throat> Do you see it? Do you see it? 
Do you see this repeated exhortation in the book of Hebrews? Don't let go of Christ. Hold on to Christ. Now, in saying all this, I realize, to be candid, that some of you may be thinking, well, you know, Larry, when I'm going through hard times, when I'm facing trials, maybe abandonment by my non-Christian friends, I'm really not that tempted to hang on to angels. I'm really not that tempted to hang on to the old covenant. Well, we're not first century Jewish Christians, are we? We're 21st century Christians, many of us here in this room. Nearly all of us are Gentiles, and we're living in a Western culture. And so if you read the book of Hebrews in some sort of detached, abstract way and say, oh, those crazy people, why in the world would they hang on to angels instead of Jesus? Well, it doesn't make any sense. You know, why would they want to go back to Judaism with the sacrifices? That doesn't ring my bell. Well, remember, even though the details might be different, the essence is still the same. Because when you and I go through hardship, when you and I go through suffering, especially suffering for the sake of Christ, we're tempted to look for something else, aren't we? I've had a growing conviction in recent years that I believe that living for Jesus Christ, living openly, passionately for Jesus Christ in our culture is going to get harder in the coming years. Some of you know me pretty well, and you can testify if anyone asks you. I'm not known as a pessimist. I get teased for wearing rose-colored glasses. And yet, even with my optimism, I believe and this is hard to say as a father and a grandfather. I talked to my grandkids about this last week. I believe that the young, young ones in our church are going to face a lot harder time in living for Jesus Christ in the coming years. For those of us that are older, parents, grandparents, Aunts, uncles, teachers, the coming generation for hard times ahead. Are we preparing them for persecution? I tell our grandkids, Jesus Christ is worth more than anything this world has to offer. Jesus Christ is worth more than everything this world has to offer. Hold on to Christ. Even if it gets hard, hold on to Christ. And so I want to encourage, even exhort, the parents and grandparents of our church that we need to teach and model for the coming generation, the worthiness of Jesus Christ. That at our funerals, the younger generation would say, I'll tell you about my papa. I'll tell you about my dad, my mom, my grandma. To live with Christ 
and the die was gain. That the younger generations growing up in this church would see Christ as supreme. Christ is superior to everyone and everything else. Superior to anything, everything this world has to offer. And the author of Hebrews knew that. And these friends of his, they were going through hard times in living for Jesus Christ. Tempted to go back to their BC ways. It, it looks safer. It looks safer to me. He says, don't go there. Don't go back. Hold on to Christ. Hold on to Christ. I don't know what you're tempted with when you're going through hard times. We all tend to look for something that will give us reassurance. I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't say too much about politics these days, but I get grieved when I see Christians saying things like, well, if we could just get the right people elected, they would make sure we can maintain our Christian rights. Forgetting that there are a multitude of brothers and sisters in Christ in other countries right now that have no Christian rights. But they have the same Savior and the same hope in Him that we have. Don't put your hope in government. Or others who think, well, as long as you know, we have a paycheck, as long as the economy doesn't tank, we'll be all right. How secure is that? Or I hear a real common when I hear people say, well, as long as you're healthy. What did COVID teach us? <laughs> Come on, life's fragile. Or you can think of social media, friends, I don't care what you talk about. But our tendency when things get rough, when we go through hard times, especially hard times for our faith in Jesus Christ, we're all tempted to look for something to give us safety, something to give us security, something that will just reassure us that everything's all right. And when we do that, the temptation is to let go of our grip on Jesus and grab hold of something else. And the book of Hebrews is so relevant to our lives today, just like it's been to all Christians in all countries over all the years. Don't let go of Jesus Christ. Even as we sang, He is our hope. There is one object of hope that never disappoints. He is always secure. He is the assurance all the insurance we need. <laughs> Notice now, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 13. And we haven't even read it yet, have we? So let's do that. That was a summary of the book of Hebrews. Now we're going to look at the end. I'm going to start reading in verse 18 and go through the end. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. There's the clue that he knew these people. And now the benediction. By the way, do you, do you know the word benediction? Bena means good. Diction, words. Good words. And let me tell you, my friends, this is a good word. <laughs> Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then these final greetings. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. 
It only took us 11 months. <laughs> you should know that our brother Timothy's been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who have come from Italy, send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Where does our ultimate reassurance lie? Ultimately, who can we count on? Notice here in this passage, I'm going to focus now on the benediction. What does the author of Hebrews say in verse 20? He says, now may the God of peace. Now, I read that a number of times before it struck me. He didn't say, now may the peace of God. I mean, we all want peace, right? And so our tendency is to gravitate there right away. But he doesn't say the peace of God. He says the God of peace. God's the focal point here. And why peace? Why is he called the God of peace? Well, I was thinking about that with the original readers. The original readers were Jewish. They were Hebrews. And their word for peace, almost all of us have heard it before, shalom. Shalom, the word for peace in the native language, expresses the collection of all of God's blessings, all of God's blessings. Shalom communicates that everything is okay. Ultimate peace means that everything is the way it's supposed to be according to God's original design. Everything's good. And yet, we sit here today and say, but everything isn't at peace. We still live in a fallen world. We all experience struggles and conflicts. Can I ask you, don't, don't answer this out loud, but can I ask you, who are you struggling with right now? Are you having conflict with someone? Maybe your spouse. I heard that happens in marriage. <laughs> or maybe your younger ones are struggling with your parents. Or maybe parents are struggling with their kids. Or siblings. Or a coworker, a friend. Maybe someone here in the church. We understand conflict. It's painful, isn't it? And those are serious. I'm not diminishing the importance of any of those. But when you think about it, what is the most significant area of conflict in anybody's life? And think about this. For every man, woman, boy or girl, anywhere in the world, no matter what the race, ethnicity, era, first language, the biggest problem for everybody in the world is the same my relationship with the God who made me. If God made me, and he did, then that means I'm accountable to him. And yet inside, there's a knot in our stomachs. I'm accountable to the God who made me, the holy God who made me. Listen to these verses about the conflict between fallen people, sinners, and God. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot do so. Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says, We were God's enemies. That's kind of an offensive thing to hear, and yet it's the word of God. 
or earlier in Romans, chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so every human being, except Jesus Christ, every human being who's ever been born is born with the same problem. And it's the biggest problem they will ever face. I am on the outs with the God who made me. I'm on the outs with the God who created me. And I'm accountable to him. So what can you do about that? How are you going to resolve that? How are you going to make that right? You know, and as I talk to people about this problem, I hear people say sometimes things like, well, you know, I, I know, I know, I need to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to try to live a better life. And I just want to say, how do you think that's going to go? I don't believe in luck, but I want to say, well, good luck with that. Let me know how long it lasts. You know, but even if, even if, from this day forward, you lived a sinless life. I mean, it boggles your mind to even think of the possibility. But what if you could actually live the rest of your life without any sin? What are you, what, what, what you going to do with all those past sins? You, you can't erase them. You, you, you can't just get rid of them somehow. What are you going to do with all your past sins? And so you and I, all of us, are faced with the same problem. This relationship with my creator, God, apart from God's intervening grace, this relationship with the God who made me is one of conflict, hostility, being on the outs with God. If you and I look at ourselves to find solutions to that biggest problem any of us have ever faced, we're going to come up dry. None of us can assuage the righteous anger of God against our sin the treason we have against the king of kings. But I'm not going to leave you hopeless today. There is hope. We sinners would not and could not solve that problem, but God did. God did by sending his son. And that's such a part of this benediction in, in Hebrews chapter 13. That God sent his son to die in our place. And many of you, maybe even the majority of you here in the room today, are already put your faith in Jesus Christ. You've already experienced his forgiving, saving grace. He, I was, it's wonderful to sit up front, by the way. You hear everyone's voices. Try it sometime. Not all at the same Sunday. It's going to get crowded. <clears throat> but I was listening to the passion with which people were singing. We were singing about the forgiveness of our sins. It thrills our hearts, doesn't it? It stirs our souls to realize that he's a forgiving God. And many of you are on your Christian journey. I was thinking about this recently. I was thinking, it's kind of like we're walking in this fallen world. We're going through this era between the Garden of Eden and the Garden yet to be revealed. And it can be hard. But we're not walking it alone, are we? It's, it's as if, it's as if. God, our Heavenly Father, has taken us by the hand, and He's walking with us on the journey. So if you allow that childlike illustration to resonate with your soul, and you realize your Heavenly Father is holding your hand, would you, in your mind, look at His face? And as you look at His face, can I ask you another personal question? 
Is he smiling at you right now? Or is he frowning at you right now? Is God smiling at you or is he frowning at you? And the answer to that is what? You can say it out loud. He's smiling at you. He's smiling at you. Why in the world would he smile at you? Because of Jesus Christ. We, we tend to live looking too much inwardly and not enough at Christ. And yet our Heavenly Father, as he takes us by the hand and walks with us through this fallen world, He's smiling as we walk along. How do we know that? How do we know that with any kind of assurance? Look at the Bible. Look at the Word of God. What does it say here? It says, by the blood of the eternal covenant. By the blood of the eternal covenant. Why is that so reassuring? Why does that reassure me that God's smiling at me? Well, when you think about not just Hebrews, when you think about the whole Bible, here is a foundational truth. Sin has to be dealt with. Sin has to be dealt with. God himself said to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, he said that he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And in our popular culture of religiosity, I think the people who still believe in a God, I don't say they believe in the God of the Bible, but people that still believe in a God, they often think of God as this kind of celestial Santa Claus guy. And when you start talking about sin, even if they believe in sin, they'll say, well, he's a forgiving God. As if God kind of shrugs his celestial shoulders saying, oh, well, what are we going to do? Boys will be boys. Okay, come on into heaven. Everybody's going to heaven. Well, except maybe Hitler and a couple others, you know. And, and people think that way. That God just kind of shrugs his shoulders and says, well, you know. And, and yet, this foundational truth is in the Bible that sin has to be dealt with. We read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. In the Old Testament days, God had his people shed the blood of animals. For instance, they would take an innocent lamb, a lamb who hadn't done anything to sin against the creator God, and the father of the family, or maybe the priest, would slit that little lamb's throat, and blood would be shed to cover the sin of him and his family. And yet, the blood of those tens of hundreds of thousands of animals, the blood of those hundreds of thousands of animals could not fully pay for the sin of the people. We read that in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. Read along with me silently if you'd like. It says in Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshiper, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But 
In these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. And then this seminal sentence, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But God had a plan. He had a promise. He had a promise of a coming eternal covenant. An agreement with sinners to make peace. And that covenant had a price to be paid. And God paid that price for us, his enemies. Does that blow your mind? First Peter says it this way. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal way, your feudal ways, the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So God promised that he would bring an eternal covenant that would bring perfect, full, permanent peace between him and his people. It would be an eternal covenant that brought about by the God of peace. And when you read your Old Testament and you get discouraged, I know Gladine and I are reading Isaiah right now in the mornings, and some of those Old Testament passages get kind of discouraging. In fact, I didn't ask her permission to say this, but sometimes Gladine will say to me, this is so discouraging. <laughs> and I says, it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be discouraging. When you read about those repeated failures of the people in the Old Testament, it should stir up this this hunger in our hearts, it should stir up in us this homesickness for a day yet to be revealed from their vantage point where God would come and solve that. When you see the failures of the kings, you say, oh Lord, send a righteous king. And King Jesus came. When the father had to slaughter another lamb, Reminded again that we're sinners. I did this last year. I'm doing it again. I'm going to do it again next year. It's like, Lord, when is the day going to come and we don't have to do this anymore? When will the perfect sacrifice come? And so God very graciously, very graciously drops down these clear promises through the prophets. Listen to some of these. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, verse 26, he says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. Does that sound familiar? We just read that in Hebrews 13. It's, it's standing on this promise of God from Exodus 37. And the author of Hebrews is saying, that's what he promised, and this is what he has done in Christ. Or how about Jeremiah 31, 31 and following? I love this passage. I hope you do as well. God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah in those very hard days. And he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sins no more. That's good news, my friend. And one more from the book of Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So God actually accomplished this covenant this agreement through the sinless life and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And one of the major foundational teachings, doctrines in the book of Hebrews is that God did for us what we could not and would not do for ourselves. And so there needed to be this agreement with God. There needed to be this covenant of peace, an everlasting covenant with God, solving this problem, the biggest problem any of us have, how, I'm on the outs with God. How can I ever be in with God? How can I ever have right standing with God? You and I could not do it and would not do it through our own religiosity, morality, philanthropy. None of those things would work. And so God did what we could not and would not do in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And here, a covenant has two parties, right? You've got to agree. It's more significant than a contract, but it would be similar in some ways. The two parties have to agree. Well, there's God's side and man's side, right? So God obviously keeps his side, and we weren't keeping ours. <laughs> and so what did God do? He sent his son as a human being. And in chapter 1, it begins with that glorious introduction to the book of Hebrews, extolling Jesus Christ, and the deity of Jesus Christ is so, so clear in those opening sentences of the book of Hebrews. And then you get to chapter 2, and it's so clear that the author of Hebrews wants, to understand, wants us to understand, not only is Jesus God, but he's also a real human being. And he goes on and he talks about the sinless of Jesus, sinlessness of Jesus Christ. And you realize what's going on there? You and I had part of that bargain that we were supposed to keep. Our part of that covenant that we could not and would not keep. And rather than God just scrapping his whole plan for the human race, he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, as a real human being, the God-man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And on our behalf, in our place, Jesus Christ lived in perfect obedience to his heavenly Father. Perfect obedience. He says, my food, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of my Father. That he came and in our place, he kept our end of the bargain. I like to say it this way. He lived the life I should have lived and didn't. He did that for me, for you, Christian. And then not only that, but then he paid the penalty for our disobedience. He 
absorbed, not just dismissed, he absorbed the righteous wrath of God that you and I earn because of our treason against the high king of heaven. He voluntarily went to the cross on your behalf, on my behalf, on our behalf. So Jesus Christ not only lived the life that we should have lived, but he died the death that we should have died. And Jesus Christ brought this long-promised covenant with God. And that's such good news, isn't it? Many of you will remember the words of Jesus the night before he died on the cross. Hours, hours before the cross, Jesus sat with his people there in that upper room. And he took that cup of wine and he said significantly, he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And every Hebrew man in that room, and if there were some women there serving as well, they knew their Bibles. And when Jesus said that, I wonder how many who've already been affected by God's grace. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We have longed for this day when God's promised covenant would be inaugurated. And now Jesus is saying, in the morning, when I hang on the cross, my blood is being poured out for you. It's the long-promised new covenant. The one that Ezekiel referred to, the one that Jeremiah mentioned, the one that Isaiah referred to, the new covenant in his blood. Oh, don't you love the words of Colossians 1, where Paul says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So God brought the new covenant, fulfilling in Jesus Christ what you and I could not and would not do, and brought us peace. That if you remember, even fellow Christian, you remember being on the outs with God, and now you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, saying, I understand that you stand for me, you stand on my behalf before the throne of God. How do you know? How do you know what Jesus did in his life and in his death worked? Now, I don't know if I'm stirring up some bad memories for anyone, but I wonder how many of you have lain awake at night at times wondering if there's going to be some surprise on Judgment Day. I mean, when it's my turn to stand before God, when it's my time to stand before the all-seeing, all-knowing, holy God, Am I going to be surprised to find out, oh, I forgot about that, or I never dealt with that, and he's going to turn me away. He's going to send me to hell. Do you ever have moments like that where you wonder, you wonder, is there going to be some surprise for me on Judgment Day? When I find out, I'm horrified to find out it, it didn't work. How do you know, and I'm serious here, how do you know that what Jesus did on the cross on your behalf worked? There's an answer to this question. The resurrection. Isn't that what our passage says today? Look at verse 20 again, friends. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. That, my friends, is good news. He brought Jesus from the dead. 
There's a verse in Romans that I would love to take more time to think about. It's Romans chapter 4, verse 25. It's not long, but boy, is it packed full of such significance. It says this, speaking of Jesus Christ, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Don't leave the resurrection out of your explanations of the gospel. When you're talking to your unsaved relatives, friends, coworkers, classmates, don't leave out the resurrection. The Bible says it was the resurrection that guaranteed our, our justification, our being declared right before the eyes of God. If Jesus had not come alive again, horrifying thought, but if Jesus had not come alive again, that means that everything he did didn't work. Sin won. Death won. Satan won. It didn't work. But the Father raised his son from the dead, just as he promised on that third morning, third day. He raised Jesus from the dead, saying to his son, as it were, what you did in your life and in your death, fully satisfied, fully satisfied all of my righteous requirements. Everything I require of my people was fulfilled in your life and your death, son. Arise, arise, my son. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is living proof that all that Jesus Christ did on the cross worked. So when you lay on your bed at night wondering, is it, am I going to be surprised on judgment day? Is God going to give me a thumbs down? Is he going to send me away? You speak the gospel to yourself. And you say, no, Satan, away with your evil divisions and discouragements. Jesus Christ lived for me. Jesus Christ died for me. Jesus Christ rose again from the dead on my behalf. Now that's assurance. It's assurance. A living guarantee. The author of Hebrews calls Jesus here the great shepherd. I, I did a little study this past week on the word shepherd when it refers to Jesus, and it just struck me. You know, in John chapter 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. And in that passage, he refers to the good shepherd as laying down his life for the sheep. So we could say the good shepherd dies for his sheep. The great shepherd, Hebrews 10, 13, lives for his sheep. And Peter calls him the chief shepherd, the head shepherd. He leads us and feeds us and cares for us. Jesus Christ is our shepherd. I want to deal with one more issue before we wrap up our study in the book of Hebrews, and that's this. We have found great assurance already today in the fact that he holds our hand and his grip is firm on us, but the author of Hebrews keeps on saying, hold on to Christ. <laughs> There's a, a call to us to hold on to him. And you and I at times can feel like, I don't know how strong my grip is. You know, Larry, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I have what it takes. Do I, do I really, am I really able to hang on to Jesus Christ? Look at verse 21 again. It says, may the God of peace, and then drop down to 21, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To whom be glory forever and ever. 
The idea of equipping here has the idea of uh, restoring something to working order or making something complete, making someone complete. God wants to make us like Jesus Christ. He wants us to have faith in Christ. He wants us to be faithful to Christ. He wants us to become more like Jesus Christ. And you say, well, I don't know if I have what it takes in and of myself to do that. Well, that's true, friends, but remember this. You're not in and of yourself. <laughs> Think with me. Think with me. There's more than one answer to this question, but I would like some out loud answers on this one. We're walking our journey. We're walking our Christian lives through a troubled land uh, in a place that's not easy. What has the Heavenly Father, what has the Heavenly Father given you to complete your journey successfully? Name something He's given you. The Holy Spirit. I'm so glad a number of you said that right out of the gate. He's given us the Holy Spirit. Jesus said before he went back to heaven, he, he reassured his men. He said, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm sending my Holy Spirit. It's better for you that I go away so the Holy Spirit will come. He's given us his spirit. So when you say, I just know, if, I don't think in and of myself I have what it takes. Well, friend, Christian friend, you're not in and of yourself. You have the Holy Spirit living in you to do God's holy will in your life, to make you more like Jesus, 2 Corinthians 3.18. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He, he's in you, making you more and more like Jesus Christ. That's his work in you. So he's given you the Holy Spirit. What else has he given you? There's more than one answer. The Word of God, I heard a number. I, I think I can sort them out in my mind, what I heard there. He's given us the Word of God. He's not left us ignorant. He's given us his written Word so that we would know the living Word, Jesus Christ. And so what a blessing we live in this era and in this country where we have the Word of God in our language. And if you got a smartphone, and almost everybody does, <laughs> you can get the Bible for free. You can get the Bible for free in multiple translations. <laughs> we have access to the Word of God. Drink deeply, my Christian friend. Drink deeply. Make it a point to read your Bible looking for Christ. When I read the Bible in the morning, I know I forget some days, but I try to remind myself every day. As I, as I start to read my Bible, I pray, Holy Spirit, show me Christ today. And the Holy Spirit is not going to begrudge me of that. He's not going to lean back saying, now why would I do that? He's going to say, thanks for asking, Larry. <laughs> Hang on, here we go. <laughs> it's glorious, friend. <laughs> So he's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us the Word of God. Someone else said he's given us one another. Thank you. He's given us one another. The Christian life is not lived in isolation. We live in the body of Christ. We are the church. Do you remember that passage I read from chapter 3? The one that said, See to it, brothers, lest any one of you be overtaken by a sinful unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. I have brothers and sisters that watch my soul. And they see me out of line. They are lovingly obligated to say, hey, Larry, where, where, where are you going? What are you doing? Let us help you get back on the path. Or if I'm discouraged, they say, what's going on, buddy? How can I help you see Christ more clearly? And I them, that in the body of Christ, as we walk the journey together, we're walking with brothers and sisters and we look out for one another. We look out for one another. We help each other. 
It's the body of Christ. We have the Spirit of God. We have the Word of God. We have the Church of God. Things like suffering. Don't waste your suffering. Suffering reminds us of how much we need Jesus Christ. That's a gift from Him. Suffering is a gift from His hand. And, and we could probably go on, but I think you get the point that we're walking this journey, and he says, hold on to Christ. Now, he's holding on to us. There's no question of his grip on us, right? He's got us. Jesus said, my, my, my people are in my hand, and no one can pluck them out. There, there's no question his, his ability to keep hold of us. And the author of Hebrews says, hold on to Christ. And that's the one that you question and say, I don't know if I have what it takes. He's given you what it need, you need. He's given you what it takes. So find assurance in him. We live under the smile of God, and we live for the smile of God. I, li I like to think of it this way. I live in peace under the smile of God, and I live with purpose for the smile of God. So it's all under his smile, all by grace. And so fellow Christian... Where is your heart? When you go through hard days, and we all do, who are you counting on? Don't lean on the things of this world. Don't grasp for security, assurance in the things of this world. They're going to let you down. Everything in this world will eventually let you down. I mean, even the best people in your life are going to die someday. And as much as we appreciate these gifts from God, Everything, everyone else will eventually let us down. Maybe through no fault of their own, but they're going to let us down. But there's one that you can count on all the time, and that's Jesus Christ. So hold on to Christ, and he will hold us fast. Some of you are here today, and you've not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ. Can I, can I urge you to think about God's kindness to you in bringing you here today? Some of you kids, teens, adults... It was kind of God to bring you here today that you would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then maybe today the Spirit of God is showing you how foolish and futile you've been to try to find some other way of being right with God. Nothing else works. Christ alone. So can I ask you today to abandon your pursuit of other objects of security, assurance, and grab hold of Christ. And I, I will not stand in front of you and say, that will make your life easier. I don't know that. But I can tell you with assurance, it'll be worth it. The living for Jesus Christ, living with Jesus Christ, is worth, it's worth anything else, everything else. Turn to him today. Let me read the very last sentence in the book of Hebrews. Then I'm going to pray as the worship team comes. The author of Hebrews ends with this glorious statement, grace be with all of you. And that's what we need, don't we? Grace. Grace be with all of you. Let me pray.